So I was in a very good position to, to have a, a leveraged negotiation, which I did. I, I negotiated both my economical compensation and my level of entry uh, really aggressively. I was really happy. I was really happy at Accenture, at, at, at SBC, especially because of the people, the culture was great. So for me to leave, it had to be really worth it, which it was. So the opportunity was just too good to, to turn down. And so that's why I decided to, to leave. Welcome to the Chemical Engineering Guys podcast, a show in which we share stories and tips from chemical and process engineers. We talk about student and professional life, as well as important aspects of products, processes, industries, and companies. But more importantly, what are the paths that these unique individuals are taking in this ever-changing world? Let's get started. Hey, what is up, guys? Welcome once again to a fresh new episode in which I'm going to be talking with one of my best friends from my university. We studied a lot of subjects. We suffer study nights and a lot of homeworks. And here is Daniel Bermudez. Daniel, can you introduce a little bit on yourself? Where did you study? What are you doing right now? And anything you think is relevant? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Manuel. First of all, thank you for having me. I think it's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to, to join you in this, in this project, this venture of yours. A little bit of, about myself. I studied chemical engineering with you. <laughs> Before that, I studied here in Chiapas. I'm from, from the southern part of Mexico, very, very small town, public, public uh, schools which I think supposedly are not the best in Mexico, but I wasn't so bad at the beginning of the career. I had a little bit of an advantage because on the on high school, I did a little bit more chemistry than, than the average person. So I was really good at chemistry in the beginning of our career. And then after five years of excruciating pain on chemical engineering, I started working on consulting. I did a first year of internship in our last year of study. So I was working and studying at the same time for one year, which was really worth it. It was a, a small consulting firm over there in Monterrey. And then after that, I joined a large consulting firm, uh, which was very focused on the energy um, sector called Schlumberger Business Consulting. I worked there for three or four years, almost, almost four years. And then after that, I joined another consulting firm, which was more general called Ernst & Young. It's one of the big four consulting firms. It's a, a great experience, very um, broad, broad uh, exposure. And then after that, I went back again to the energy industry in a more elite, uh, I like to call it elite firm because it's more well recognized in the industry. Um, Wood Mackenzie is called. Okay, that's great. So friends, you have it there. Daniel is right now. What would you say it's the industry? Is it uh, business consulting or is it more uh, oil and gas research of the market or what exactly is the industry you are working on? Yeah, the, the core business of my, my current employer is research, research for energy, natural resources um, topics. So both uh, oil and gas, power and renewables, um, LNG, chemicals, metals and minings, and all natural resources. So that's the core business. What we do is we gather a lot of knowledge. We create uh, insight, um, industry insights. We sell subscriptions for the people that want to access our data. Uh, we organize the data in tools. 
And then we have a small arm that has bespoke consulting projects that leverages all of the data and all of the insight that the research people gather and create to have more specific analysis and more specific projects that more, more typically are uh, focused on the strategy level of the company. So when a company wants to make a decision as when to invest or divest in a transaction or how much value they have to assert an asset, if they want to, to both sell or buy, we're usually part of that because from with access to all of the information, um, valuation is much more certain and we were talking about the energy industry, the oil and gas industry in particular, the quantities of the transactions are just enormous. And so yeah. having additional set of, of both um, knowledge and information can give an edge for a transaction that's so big that the, the decisions just one way or the other have huge impact. So they, they hire us typically for, for this kind of, of answers. I see. So definitely a lot of value like let's say a market research for a very serious one and I, I like the part that you say that it's, it's strategic thinking not just that okay they are selling this right here they're the price of this product is that the government in certain part no it's more like let's make this a informational product so you can get value out of it right exactly exactly because um it's it's very different to have access to lots of data that than what to do with that data, what decisions to, to take with that data, and what are the best um, investment strategies or what are the best divestment decisions that you can make, cost-cutting strategies and whatnot with the data. So the combination of that strategic thinking with uh, 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 lots of data is where the most value is added in, in the kinds of projects that we try to participate in. Okay, and I can imagine this is globally, or is it mostly for the North America region? What's the main clients to, that you're working with? The company is originally from Scotland, and it's uh, it's globally it has a global presence. Then uh, uh, something like four or five years ago, uh, an American company bought us, and it's an American holding. So the her headquarters are are in in the United States, in the north of the United States. And most of my own business is in, in the Americas region. So that's uh, companies from Canada, United States, and, and Mexico, and sometimes in Latin America. Mm, that sounds great. So essentially, yeah, most of the world, right? Yeah. Okay. Correct. So, Daniel, I, I want to get back to the beginning. And I know this is the typical format. So if you guys want to skip all the way to the actual industry, you can do it. But for me, it's always very important to try to start from the beginning because you are in a very, let's say, privileged, not, not privileged, but a position that a lot of chemical engineers, maybe young engineers, or maybe even senior engineers will want to be. So did you ever thought that by studying chemical engineering, you will end up in something similar that you're doing right now? Or was it, uh, a, let's say, spontaneous or unexpected? Yeah, I think it was more the latter. It was probably more um spontaneous slash what was available in terms of opportunities rather than a planned path from the beginning uh, at the beginning the, the reason that i decided to to study chemical engineering was because of my my father's um family business i thought chemical engineering was one of the more suited careers to come back and help him with his business he has a a small uh brewery of of both um 
high quality liquors and and some uh, bubbly beverages let's call it that because they are they are not not necessarily sodas but more artisanal kind of things so thinking about this beverage industry in a in a small um, scale in an artisanal scale i thought that a chemical engineering degree would be best suited to scale it up and work with however that, that was one of the first motivators and then after i i, I joined i realized it was the, one of the greatest decisions because of the content and, and the people I, I got to meet so during the the evolution of our career and being exposed to what are alternative paths and then being exposed to what opportunities were presented to us particularly at the end of our career on the recruiting um recruiting events and how uh, some specific companies came to to find people to employ i realized that one of the great career paths was was consulting and also i, I realized I, I got to know a little bit more about myself understand what were my some of my strengths and abilities and most of that was aligned with the consulting business and and lastly i had a a, a more uh, senior cousin of mine which worked in in boston consulting group which is one of the three top uh, general consulting uh, management firms and he shared his experience with me and, and after I, I got to understand all of the consulting career path and the intellectual challenge that it represented that's when i, I realized that then it could be a very suitable path for me okay but, so you just love the idea of going into uh, business and industry overall mm -hmm. Yeah, they, what what I do love most is the the intellectual challenge and the continuous learning requirement. That's that's probably one of the reasons I I continue working here. Okay, and going back once again, when did you like realize? I imagine yourself going to tech in the initial first semester, maybe two three semesters. When did you realize that? Oh. Uh, I was going to maybe go back and help my father in the company, but maybe there are so many areas that I can focus. So maybe it's not necessarily for me that I need to go back so I can open my own way. When exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, that, that's, I think it's, uh, it's hard to, to pinpoint a, a, an, inflection, an inflection point. I, it's, I would say that it was a, some more of a, a couple of stages of my experience at first uh, the the first exposure that i had on on project evaluation sort of subject on project engineering which we started learning what mpv was and financially evaluate the, uh, a project was one of the first sparks of interest of the kind of work that consulting does and then on the um abroad experience i had in in france i i, I left for france in six months and then they over there i had some actual business um more business focused uh, syllabus so that those two were a little bit of more uh, look at look at what the other side of the processing plants and the uh, and and the part that very technical part that we learn uh, very um, very deeply in our career look at the other side of all of all of this they're both very important you need to understand both of them to to be able to explode all of these opportunities and so i think by having a little more exposure on the business side of our career was probably a couple of the stages that pushed me into the direction and then as i was saying before after learning what would be potential career paths both with more senior people that work there and with their recruiting uh, events 
I think in, in these sort of stages, I realized that probably more aligned for my, my strengths was a, a different career path than coming back home and, and helping here. Okay, that's great. And what did your father thought? Did he always allow you to do your own path or did he wanted to, you to go back and help him? Oh, he, he was very supportive. I, I, he, he would have loved that I came back, but uh, once, uh, once he realized how, how happy I was and, and, and how uh, potential growth I could have, he, he, he never even, even brought the subject back once. And not even today, he has even brought the subject. And the other thing that helped was that one of my brothers came back. He, he used to work in consulting as well, but he couldn't help, he couldn't handle the, the work-life balance. So he, he came back and, and there was, uh, he was filling up a, a big space here. So I think that that helped. Mm, okay, definitely. Then, and my, I have this question, which is also a personal one, not just for this show, but did you ever saw yourself being a process engineer or an engineer that's actually working in the machines and in the process? Or did you always saw yourself, let's say, on the administration part or more into the, let's say, office thing of the process? Yeah, I think at the beginning, I had a little bit of a, an illusion of working as a very technical process engineer, designing process and designing plants and doing the core chemical engineering work because I really loved that those subjects and I was really good at them. But then I realized that that there is a lot more value in different parts of the value chain of, of the plants and that that so specific technical work is typically very um, limited in terms of impact and value creation. So, so I think my ideal path would be to, to have that very temporary, just enough to understand what are the intricates of those processes and those designs and the plant and to be very well versed in the engineering part, but to have the responsibility of a much higher level, to have a, a more strategic responsibility on the decision of where to put the money in, how much money, what is the size, uh, what is the, going to be the strategy going forward for, for what venture you, you want to get involved with. So, so that's why I, I thought that uh, even though I, I think it's a very, um, quote unquote, romantic uh, way of developing your your profession. I think for a much higher, both uh, both economical retribution and impact, it's probably you have to put your sights to a much higher uh, higher point of view. If if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Actually, to be honest, I didn't imagine myself not going into the actual machines. So I said. Mm. I studied five years this stuff to end up not doing it. So I was like, no, I got to go there. And that's <laughs> why I really searched for a process engineering part. But I also imagine myself like you did, that you wanted to go and grow grow into a higher value position, not always exactly. stay, which doesn't mean that there's no value in process engineering, but that you, the thing you stated that you are, let's say, the, the head or mind of the uh, let's say plant and yeah. you know what to do how much to produce what to sell which clients to go uh, all that and the process engineer is simply just adjusting the process which in my opinion is also great but if you want to go further in the value chain that you stated it's also a very good idea to directly go there 
or do you think it was a great idea to go directly for business consulting or do you maybe have this doubt whether or not you should have gone into process engineering first know the process stuff and then go into business consulting yeah um at the beginning i had my doubts that i as, as you said i think there is a lot of value in going inside the intricates of the process in going inside the machine uh, going really close the machines and understand those technical issues so at the beginning i thought i i i was missing out on having that experience however after a few projects that that uh forced me into learning really fast some of the processes i realized that that it can it can be learned just deep enough to have a high level decision and just to 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 not be able to for someone to deceive you let, let me put it that way so just you you understand it just well enough that when you have to negotiate with with someone or when you have to take a decision you you don't mess up and and after i realized that i sort of kind of dominated those those doubts and and they dissipated and then i was glad that i started on the consulting uh journey from the beginning because i realized that it's it's not a one-way street let me put it that way so anytime i would re i would require to understand the intricates of the process i could do it and i it probably was going to be hard because you had to do it fast but but i could do it on the other way if you start on the engineering on the process engineering going back to consulting that's a harder harder uh transition you need to either start from the beginning or or practically go on an mba and then apply and the and the the application process the recruitment process are insane they are a very low acceptance rate so going through those hurdles later in your career is much harder so the the quote unquote two-way street is easier if you're on the consulting side rather than on the process engineering side okay yeah i'm with you in that that you need to know the least amount of information in order to avoid being deceived it's like going to exactly. the car mechanic and you don't know what's happening let's say you just bring the car and say okay please fix it and they can deceive you and tell you now it's this pump and this gear and this uh let's say part of the motor which is very hard to get and i'm going to charge you xx y amount or if you know okay maybe i know it's the transmission i will let them know it's about the transmission i know it's only this gear the one that's failing and then you go and show them that you actually know about the let's not the process the car they will not deceive you or at least not deceive you that much exactly no completely and in my case since it's since it's what you're trying to solve are uh, high level problems for a large oil and gas company you need to go and interview lots of actual process engineers and try to understand from their point of view what are the real problems that are going on so you need to be able to understand their language you need to be able to understand some of the very technical answers that they'll give you and interpret them and synthesize them and create whatever uh whatever recommendations that you'll get from that whole analysis and understanding the intricacies of the process at a certain level just to be able to interpret their their issues and their and their answers that that is very valuable but that's that's not a completely uh deep and enough analysis that you would require to perform the position to be able to interpret that information You can okay. do it with less less than 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 actually performing the position. 
And I have this doubt. Would you say that you have an advantage compared to maybe another, let's say, someone that studies finance or business itself and have, let's say, not exactly the same job position, but similar positions? Would you say that you have an advantage in that sense? Or would you say that it's overall about the people or, let's say, about the person, if he's capable or not of getting along with, let's say, in this case, with a process engineer that it's working in a refinery? I would say that, yes, there is an advantage at junior positions, at an analyst position, at a business consultant position. There is an advantage. The advantage is very light. I think the, the other factor that you mentioned, the, the capability of learning and, the, and the, the way you, you interact with people, that is more important. But still, if you have, quote unquote, ceteris paribus, if you have the same amount of capability and interactions, and you have a chemical degree because you understand, you have a better capacity of understanding these complex processes versus someone that studied economics or finance that doesn't, having the rest of the variables constant, this will give you an edge in the sense that you will require less time to cross that uh, learning curve, which is a, one, of the, one of those terms that is used widely. <laughs> learning yeah. curves in, in, in our careers, it's, every project requires a learning curve. So the faster you go through that learning curve, the more efficient you'll be able to deliver. And especially, especially at junior levels, where you have to prove yourself uh, both with the manager and the rest of the company and comparatively to other analysts, um, that small edge can represent a difference in terms of performance or in terms of time that is required for you to, to deliver certain analysis and whatnot. And at, at those levels in, in, this, in this industry, it's very competitive and the way, not, not only at those levels, at every level it's very competitive, but, but the way that the evaluations are performed are, are not absolute, are very relative amongst analysts. So when, when there is a, a bunch of, of very competitive people, very smart people, or overachievers driven and whatnot, that edge can represent a difference for you to stand out on a on, on that sort of environment, which I think is, is great. Yeah, definitely. I, I have this image of business consultants or let's say overall consulting engineers that they gotta be proactive and not only if you don't know it, no one's going to expect you to say, I don't know, sorry. No, it's, they expect you to go and find the solution because you are the one that it's consulting. You are the one that it's solving the problem itself. So talking about this, Daniel, how would you describe a business consultant in the, let's say, entry level point, may, maybe half point, and then senior level, manager level? So how do you think they should be How or what background they should have? So the business consultant, in in our in my experience in, in our firm originally in, in Schlumberger Business Consulting, it, it was it we used to go recruit at every single career. Everyone that would be interested was a candidate. However, for some reason, most or all of the people that we ended up extending an offer to were half of them chemical engineers, the other half were economists, and maybe that's because the profile of the people that you want matches the people that tend to choose those careers. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the reason for that, but that that was a very interesting outcome in, in my opinion. And apparently, that outcome reflected on other firms as well, not not only on ours that that was um, focused on the energy industry, but also on other generalist firms. So, so I think there is somewhere somewhat there that describes the who is a is a 
a business consultant in an entry level. So I would say that a business consultant on an entry level is someone that loves the intellectual challenge, someone that maybe maybe love is a strong word, but at least enjoys uh, having uh, these intellectual challenges, enjoys having to solve problems that don't have a straight answer and has the ability to learn new things quite quickly. So I, these are all very generic um, generic characteristics that I'm describing, but but I think those things fit well with the chemical engineering profile, ha- having the ability to structure a complex problem is some of the things that you learn best by those complex um, subjects such as, as transform, uh, trans- mass transfers and momentum transfer and heat transfer, all of those things just give you very complex problems that you need to understand in your mind, structure them and be able to go uh, step by step to solve them. So so going back to your question, who is a, a junior level uh, business, business consultant is one, someone that likes to have intellectual challenges, someone that is capable of structuring complex problems and someone that is uh, willing to execute on the steps to solve these complex problems. And, and by that, there, there are a bunch of other soft characteristics that require, such as dri- drive, discipline, um, such some, some kind of mental order. And of course, being very good at numbers is always great because everything everything is about numbers. In, in our firm is that, okay, you, you have that decision, you need to put a value in that decision. You need to put a number in that decision. That's That's half of the work we do how much does this decision cost? How much is it worth? So the numbers parts is, is very, very um, important. And um, then- Daniel, uh, sorry, just a quick question. Would you say gut feeling is out of the way or would you say it's also valuable? I think gut feeling is very valuable at more senior levels. Okay. At, at, at more junior levels, those uh, strong analytics, strong structuring, great communication skills, great, both uh, being able to clearly explain an idea, both written and and talk. Those are the things that are probably most valuable. And some of these are most, mostly trained during the first couple of years. Uh, And so having the innate ability to learn all of this is, is probably what's what best fits the profile, but on later, more senior uh, positions and, and more responsibilities, you start to get more of that soft part, that that gut feeling, and and more more of a people interaction and team building and all of those soft uh, abilities become more and more and more important. So the, the the gut feeling part, I think, that is very closely related to to your experience. So as you go on having experience in in different projects in different industries and learning lots of lessons, there is a subconscious part in your brain that knows what's going on and can tie the analogies between one one problem in one industry and the other problem in the industry. And I think the reflection of that subconscious learning is is the gut feeling telling you one way or the other. So I think that's why it's more more ref, uh, typically reflected at, at more senior positions. Say educated, gut feeling, uh, I guess, what you say? Yeah, yeah, completely. And 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 I I in my in my own experience I, I think I'm not senior enough to to be strongly guided by my gut feeling, but I see it very often on on partners and, and directors that they they very quickly know what the answer is going to be, and and then we just invest a lot of time in proving that answer 
but that that gut feeling that tells them what the correct hypothesis to very complex questions is, I think that's just a product of lots of years of experience. Okay. And before we go to the senior level, let's say profile, I want to ask you this. Would you say intelligence is something required or will you say that you can fake it till you make it? Or maybe it's more about uh, people skills. What's the thing with, because I have this idea that a lot of intelligent people go into business consulting. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, it's very hard to say what, um, what level is actually raw intelligence and what level is uh, sort of, of lots of practice because the, the recruitment process is a very standard way of screening people and this standardization can be perfected through practice. So we have uh, this, this math exam at the beginning and then you get uh, from three to six case interviews. And then there is a soft part which you evaluate in terms of how much rapport the, um, the interviewer builds with the interviewee. And that is very hard to practice, I would say. So that, that's, that's around 20% of, of, the, of the process. The, the 80% of the process, the, the, the typical 80-20, is on the, on the more practicable skills. So if you are maybe not an intelligence in the, in the classical sort of EQ, IQ kind of, kind of way, because there are different types of intelligence as well. But, but if you are not on the, uh, say, top 15 or top 20 percentile of IQ, but you practice a lot of, of GMAT and you practice a lot of case interviews and you have good rapport, you can definitely make it. And, and of course, the, the, there's probably going to be a much higher probability that you, that you do that if you are on the, on the top percentile of, of IQ of, of quote unquote classical cognitive intelligence. So I think it's uh, my, my, my long answer to your short question would be it's a factor that is nice to have but not necessary not necessary however to to complement if if that's not the case in your case you would probably require a much higher amount of practicing on the standard standardized version of the recruitment process and will you say maybe selling skills let's say someone that is very uh i don't know practice in that way that can sell maybe a insurance seller or tele Uh, telemarketer that sells a lot, would you say they have a, a good shot or let's say they, they are not in the top uh, of the intelligence level, but maybe they are very good at selling, only selling, let's say, not solving mm -hmm. problems, just selling. Would you say they have a good position in the industry? But they wouldn't, would they have strong analytics or would they have a strong way to structure a problem? Uh, or are they just really, really good at selling and not good at all at the other parts? Is that the let's case? Say, let's say they are not the best, but the strong part is they are very good at selling. That would be very hard. It would be very hard because um, depending on, on, on which level you want to entry into consulting, at, at the classical entry points, which are analysts, uh, say, uh, graduating, From, from undergrad or, or graduating from, from postgrad, from, from a master's degree. Those are the two classical entry levels. At those two entry levels, there's a much higher weight of the decision on the analytical skills than on the soft or slash selling skills. So it would be very hard for someone that is very strong at selling, but not very strong at, at analytical or structuring to go into those levels. 
However, there are probably positions more uh, more senior, higher up in the in the chain as as a director or as a there are different names depending on the firm for for the position. But typically, there is there is the entry level analyst, then the consultant, then the manager, and then after the manager, there is the director or the principal just before partner. And at that level, the responsibilities are more focused on selling. You need to sell projects. You need to be able to create relationships with the clients. You need to get inside the client's agenda. And and typically, people at those, at those positions are required to have a much higher degree of abilities in the softer, softer side of more people, people skills and selling skills. However, to be able to get there, you it's a given that you have the the core consulting skills. It's a given because you most likely have gone through the prior steps, and most likely you have you have that that um, core consulting skills because that selling becomes a very important part of your responsibility. But you still have to be able to execute. You still have to be able to guide your team, and you still have to be able to challenge your team and and just you you have to be able to screw the the tools just strong enough within your team so that the quality of your work remains at the most rigorous level and that will always fall back into those core consulting skills so that's why i i would say that it would be very unlikely that someone without those gets gets in even at those senior level positions that selling is a more uh, more valuable skill. Okay, and Daniel, I know that you were you were I don't know if you were, but I know you, that you did some let's say uh, recruiting, right? And when you are looking for candidates, do you are looking for someone that of course has, as you stated, the analytical skills? But are you also expecting that they have this potential to become the so-called sellers or directors? Or would you say that in some cases you, you already know that this person is going to just get into the entry level point and maybe with good luck will end up his career in the, let's say, uh, I don't know what's the following one, the consultant level? No, completely. I, the idea, the, I would say that the ideal candidate has enough of everything to reach the top. However, it's very hard in a recruiting process to be able to evaluate at that uh, at such depth levels uh, those abilities. I mean, it's it's just uh, four or five interviews of one hour, and and so if you participate in the recruiting process from the recruitment from the recruitment point of view, you get to speak to the candidate twice, once in in one hour interview, and then once in a in a in a different process that he he presents a, a problem or, or a, a boot camp, it depends. So you get to interact with him or her twice, right? So it's it's, it's very sm a small window to be able to judge such a, a, a deep character evaluation. So you need to, to be able to see that at least he'll be able to very greatly perform the first couple of levels. And and I think that the soft parts to evaluate, you just have to go with your gut. <laughs> Going back to to your previous um, gut feeling discussion that that you raised before, I, I think for that it's it's very hard to say. And and what in the reality, 
there is a very small amount of, of people that come into consulting that actually gets to go up until those, those levels. Those levels are, it's like, so from the recruitment side, it's like maybe less than 1% from the people that apply get hired. And from the people that get hired, even even a lower amount of people reach partner level because it's, it's just a, not only a, a matter of, of having the, the correct profile, having the abilities, it's, it's also dependable of the economic environment, how well did you choose your, your, the client that you will invest time with, how um, disciplined you are in maintaining drive across years of years of, of, of um, very cyclical uh, work-life balances where there is so intense uh, periods and then not so intense periods, but it's just so many variables that very, very small amount of people reach those levels. So, so I would say that it's it's almost impossible to know. However, I think the idea is to try to choose people that have the potential. But I say that it's very, very inaccurate uh, because it's it's almost impossible to to realize with such a small level of interaction. Okay, okay. And talking about this, then I can imagine being under pressure. Uh, do you see your fellow colleagues as competition or how... How would you describe, and I, I love it because you have been in several firms, so it's not only that you've been only in one, but how would you describe overall this industry and how do they, how do colleagues and bosses and uh, superiors see themselves? Is it a very raw ambient in which everyone sees themselves as a competition or would you say it's very healthy environment or something in between? I think that, that specific, um, that specific, characteristic it's it's very different among firms and not only among firms but within the same firm it's different among offices so in in my in my personal experience it at the first office i was in the people i was competing quote unquote competing with were very very close friends of mine i mean you you know them they they we studied together uh, at chemical engineering and and most of people were from the same school and and we were very close friends and the, the the dynamics of the office just was great in terms of team cohesion so i never felt like was i was competing or i never had any negative bias towards um any of my colleagues in terms of of what of a some zero game whatever they lost i would gain or whatever i lose they would gain never not at all i it was a positive sum game in which when when they perform well i could learn from what great did they do and i that would benefit myself so it was good for me that they were great performance and, and in reverse as well when i was go, doing really good and i was i was thriving on a specific project i'd be able to share that with them and they they'd be able to replicate it and business was going well as well that's another um probably a, another variable that affects the dynamics and the culture of the office if if the business is 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 working if projects are selling and if we all have work and there is enough um there's enough size there is enough growth available to be shared amongst most employees so so that also allows that that game to to not be zero sum so those those variables and there are probably other in, in there's probably some some part of, of personal chemistry amongst colleagues and and whatnot that that also allowed and and the way the leadership led the office and and other probably variables that i'm that i'm missing but during those first four years on, on my experience it was very positive sum game 
competitive, but very healthy competitive. And that that helped a lot in, in a very accelerated career path. In the other uh, firms on, or, or for, for other uh, friends of mine that worked at different firms, I saw that it was very much going like the zero-sum game kind of dynamics uh, as, to, as to the ranking would be dependent of the performance of each person. And if one person performed better, then by definition, you would require to be ranked lower and be required to be compensated lower and et cetera, et cetera. So, so that, that, that I think that, that exists a lot. That is a, more likely, I think that's the case in, in which the competition is not as healthy and the, the personal relationships are not always as, as, as close. Uh, it's it's a very hard balance to find, I think, and I, I was I would say I was very fortunate at the beginning. At my second my second stage, I I, I at my second firm I entry at a more senior level, so my dynamics were very very different, and my role was very very different from the first one. So I didn't have enough. Um, I didn't have a significant time frame to extract a, a conclusive um, idea or to, to have a, a straight answer for that. But but I think the the, the very the very fact that I was at a most senior level and, and the culture was completely different changed the whole dynamic, definitely. However, I, I think um, uh, more more often than not, the dynamic is not the most um, <clears throat> sorry the dynamic is not the most healthy. So yeah, okay. yeah like a shark tank, right? Exactly, completely. Piranha tank. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun, man. You need some adrenaline. You need some stress yeah. to grow. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about the stress, but right now let's stick to to your, let's say, CV or curriculum. And one question I have for you is, I know that you went directly to this growth and profit consulting firma. That's the name of the firma. And I want to ask you, Why didn't you go to a, let's say, top company as you were saying, like Bain or BCG or all those McKinsey, all those companies that are, let's say, the, the standard way to start a business consulting life? So the, that was because it, it, it was a matter of what opportunities were available at the time. It, it's probably the major reason as to why I took it. But the other reason was that since I wanted to, uh, quote unquote, tip my toe on the water. I wanted to do it in a in a place where I could if 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 any if anything was the worst I, I didn't lose much. I wanted to have the opportunity later on to apply because on the on the top GMCs you get to apply and then if they reject you then I think you're not, not sure but you, you might not get to apply instantly after at the same sort of consecutively. So I wanted to quote unquote save my my bullet. So okay. I went top top at you in the water while saving a bullet for the for the big role if, if that worked. But the the and the other reason was because the the opportunity of working in Monterrey with the people I worked with that was a, a one of the while starting. Yeah, that that was a lot of value in my in my view. Okay. Can can we can you share a little bit on that or would you just like to leave that as a overall experience? What what do you mean? In in my first yeah, year Yeah, what did you do in that no, company? It, yeah, definitely. I, it, it was a lot of fun. I, it was a small, small firm. We were like 15 people in Monterrey. And the overall objective of, of the firm was to help family businesses, medium, mid to, to large family businesses, institutionalize and 
to have a more standardized protocol of planning, strategic planning, and cost reduction initiatives, and, and all of the uh, organizational issues, and all of the general consulting things that you can apply uh, to, uh, in, in, in general, the, the theoretical consulting business, but apply to family business in Monterrey. So that was very interesting because the, the other motivation that I had was if I understand how to do this really well, I can ultimately apply it in a, a family business of my own or in my, fa my father's. So that was a, an ulterior motivation, which was really good. But then I realized that working with these family businesses, is, there's two things. One is it's really hard to sell projects at competitive rates, because if you're, if you're working your ass off with these very high strategic, high value tasks, you want to charge what you're worth or what the value of the projects could be. But if that decision is applied to a business that is, um, I don't know, that is uh, selling a certain amount of, of million dollars in which if you charge $100,000 for a project that you, you're going to cost the business a significant part, part of their costs, then it's it becomes very hard to escalate your work because it, when you are doing this analysis, it doesn't matter if you're doing it for a $1 million plant or a $100 million plant or a couple of billion dollar plants. The analysis is around the same and it takes you around the same amount of time. Maybe the data is a little larger on larger plants, but but you, you just need to drag the formulas on the Excel a little higher, a little go farther to the right or further down. So the amount of time invested versus the impact or the retribution or the economical compensation is not as asymmetrical as it is in now, in hindsight, as it is in, in, in the energy industry. So so that was one of the setbacks that that really, really, really quickly I learned that applying these kinds of, of um, abilities and analysis is much more valuable at, at much higher levels and at much higher scales of projects. So that was one of the great uh, lessons from, from that first year and first experience. And do you still keep in touch with your, let's say, previous bosses or superiors? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I had uh, three three people, three um, partners were the funding partners of the, the firm. Now they have separated. They are they have their own firms. They, I think there are two firms now, but the three of them they are good friends of mine, and I have so much respect for them. And I think they they three are very very successful, and poof, they they are great people. I, they, you always remember your first boss. One of the three of them, we we got along personally really, really well. And he, when I graduated, he gave me, he told me my first boss gave me this gift, and he gave me like a, this very beautiful, expensive pen from from Mont Blanc. So mm -hmm. he he gave the same gift to me. He's like, my first boss gave me this gift, and now that I'm your first boss, I want you to have it and just to remember this experience. Uh, those were great and are still great relationships. Well, that's a great way to remember a boss. Yeah, definitely. And well, let's let's continue. So you st you stay there in GPC, uh, what one year was it? Yeah, one year. Yeah, one year. And what was the thing that made you change to Schlumberger Business Consulting? So the the whole opportunity came uh, similar to the to the GPC one. The availability of opportunities that were at the time led me to the uh, recruitment process of, of Schlumberger. And after learning the lessons, bo both lessons that were important to me, one was that consulting was a type of 
work that was really adapted to or really fitted my my profile and the other one was much higher um much higher level um projects or much larger scale opportunities for these kind of, of projects was uh, a much more efficient way to extract value out of it those two lessons led me to be very excited about the sbc opportunity and so when they came to the to the, to the school to recruit I, I prepared myself, I did all of these cases and, and I apply and then the whole process and, and me and a couple of other friends from our foreign career, we did the process together. And yeah, it was, it was a tough process, but was completely worth it. So that's why I, I ended up accepting the, the offer instead of continuing to work in the, in the GPC first firm that I got. And comparing the, let's say, life work balance of the first conf uh, consulting firma and SBC, was there a huge change or yeah. would you say the both of them were very disbalanced? No, the, the um, GPC one was very, very tranquil and very, very well balanced. The, the three partners were very aware that you want to have a very holistic employee value proposition. And on the second one, it was very dependent on the project and the manager as it was typically in, in a top GMC. Uh, GMC is general management consulting. So in a top GMC, each manager has its own style. Um, each project has, has its own um, demanding requirements. And, and it depends on the length of the project, on how the client works and, and how well you are at going through these uh, uh, learning curves that we were discussing at the beginning. And, and so the, and the end result was that the first couple of years, poof, the first year was really tough. I, after 10 months, I, I wasn't sure if that's, that's really what I wanted. I, I was about to quit maybe once or twice because I wasn't completely convinced that the whole sacrifice of work-life balance was worth it. But I also, I think that my judgment was a bit biased because I had a very bad luck in my, my first project in terms of work-life balance. But after I had a couple of other projects and I had a little more, more um, a larger sample, yeah, a larger sample size, I realized that, that it was much more uh, aligned to what I really wanted and, and it was a great decision to stay. So, uh, so I, yeah, I ended up not i ended up not regretting the decision of taking it which i don't yeah. yeah because you also moved from city right from monterey to mexico city yeah. would, would you say that change affected something or... no it, it does it's always change of scenery change of life we, when you're exposed to a different uh different city in mexico city it's really hard to drive so you i i would walk to the office every day which was a really good thing but but going from one place to another with the amount of traffic it became really hard so you need to plan your evenings well and well you don't know as much as you knew on your previous city so that that always in, in, influences your your lifestyle indeed so yeah i guess that that also influences but but after I, I, when you move to a new city i would say after six or ten or maybe one year six months or ten months or one year everything you adapt and it's it's amazing the capability of adaptation that people have i mean we can adapt to anything any quality of life so after you adapt then it's it's great <laughs> yeah that's and I, i have this doubt would you consider mexico city the main hub for business consulting yeah absolutely uh, it's 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 in mexico it's a very centralized economy it's 
by far the largest economical hub and by far the largest concentration of, of large headquarters of companies, both Mexican and international companies. The the second the second is is, is Monterrey, but it's a far second, and, and it has headquarters of large companies from Monterrey, but most international companies have their head, headquarters in 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 Mexico City. So interacting with people that have positions on the large uh, corporatives and headquarter offices is where most consulting business is led. So being able to interact, which now is ironically is not not that important as interactions are mostly done yeah. remotely, but but uh, historically interactions have to be with the highest level people, and those people are typically located at the headquarters. So most economical activity and decisions are led from the headquarters, and particularly in the energy industry, the the two large oil, uh, both oil company and electric company have their cooperatives in Mexico City, so Pemex and, and CFE, and all of the subsequent economical development that peripheries these two companies and these two industries is there. All of the headquarters are there, with a couple of exceptions, but most of it is is there and and those exceptions that have headquarters elsewhere would have a very relevant office in mexico city that is just important enough to conduct business with so it's by far the best place to, to work in mexico so would you recommend or maybe not even recommend but say that it's almost a must that young business consultants will end up in well let's say in the case of mexico in mexico city but overall in a global city or hub for government, I would say Mexico City is essentially the thing is government and energetic center and as well as business, of course. Would you say it's a, a requirement? I think in, in it depends a lot in the country and it depends a lot in the industry because uh, at least in Mexico, it's it's an, uh, an easy an easy guess. An answer is, is easy in Mexico, but in different countries in the US, you have uh, technology technology hub in, in Silicon Valley, in California, and a fi financial hub in, in New York, and an energy hub in Houston, and et cetera, et cetera. So there are different hubs of different industries in different cities. So it depends on what you want to specialize. There's a higher amount of probability to go into the specific place you, that, that you want to go to, to go into that industry. But um, in, in terms of, of consulting in general with, um, with a open um, repertoire of industries, I would say that a big city is a must. That I would say so. A big city is a must. Now, nowadays, if you can work remotely at, at senior level positions, you can do it from anywhere. But an entry level position, when you need to prove yourself to the office, when you need to learn those skills, when you need to interact a lot, it's even even in in, in remote working era like this one, it's probably going to be a requirement that you develop physically within a big city. Okay, yeah, I, I would say business consulting is always going to these nice cities. Yeah. Because it's it's always about also the status because the headquarters typically, not only about business consulting, but overall uh, headquarters will be in great cities, which the life there is a very metropolitan style or lifestyle. Yeah. So yeah, I will agree with you that eventually you will need to move to a large city, but I just was wondering if it was possible maybe, or I would say maybe into smaller firmas that will be the case, but for large companies, 
not likely, right? I think so. I think um, depends also on the culture of the company. There's probably companies that will be more open, especially going forward in remote working at any level, at even entry levels. And, and for those companies, for, for those cultures, which are probably the smaller companies and more agile and innovative and more like uh, startups and stuff like that, that, that in that sense, it's probably irrelevant uh, where you are physically. But in the more classical um, companies, the top GMCs currently established large consulting firms, I think it's going to be really hard for remote working to work at any level, especially at entry level. So I think it's still time for that to happen. So I think it's going to be a requirement. Okay. And Daniel, I have here your, let's say your job titles, business analyst, then senior analyst and associate consultant. So I want you to ask, I want to ask you about the main works that we were doing in, in such job titles. Did they change? What were the responsibility differences? And were you able to manage a group of people or was it always you serving a boss? So those first three levels are pretty much the same. Um, the, the only difference between the levels are the level of responsibility that you have within a project, you report to a project manager, you develop, in the first level, you develop a specific part of a work stream. And in the second, in the senior analyst or the consultant, you are uh, whole responsible of an entire work stream or a, or a part of the project. And and you develop in, independently from the manager and the manager just uh, just uh, checks, checks on you um, less frequently than at the beginning. And you have much more independence to develop the project towards whatever you feel the conclusion should lead and to create your own conclusions uh, on your on your own work stream. Uh, but the, the role within a project is very similar. You work below a project manager. You work to have answers to specific questions within the project and you report to the, to the manager. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Okay. And then the... Section SBC was bought or acquired by Accenture. Can you let us know what was all about this transition, which I find it pretty interesting because it's not that common, but it's, I will say, very interesting how being acquired by another company changes culture, if if that's the case. No, yeah, that that was an interesting as well from, from my point of view. It What happened was that the large, large company, Schlumberger, uh, wanted to focus on their core business. The Schlumberger is a large oil services company. So what they do is they sell um, services, uh, drilling services or seismic or wire uh, wire lock services or general ser actual physical services to oil producing companies. So to, to Pemex or to Shell, Exxon. So that that is the core business. And the consulting arm of that huge company was a very small part of the business that was not part of its core. So they decided to divest it and sell it. And so the, 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 the buyer, in this case Accenture, agreed to buy uh, employment of a bunch of people. We were like 200 people and paid a, an amount of money to Schlumberger just to, for, for Schlumberger to um, fire those people and for Accenture to hire us, <laughs> which was very funny because um, there was no real difference in what we were doing, but there was a difference in terms of who we were. So 
there was a, a brand difference. There was a, a difference in terms of what we could, we, we would have a little bit more liberty in working with, for example, competitors with Schlumberger that we wouldn't before. We couldn't, we couldn't do a project for a, a, a direct competitor of Schlumberger because we were Schlumberger. So there was a big conflict of interest. So there was a little bit of an advantage there. There was also a difference in terms of what we could speak to the press or not, because Schlumberger being very involved with the oil producing companies is very sensitive on what they can say or what they cannot say about the performance of these oil producing companies. Now that we were Accenture, we were a lot more free to have an opinion on the performance of specific companies that were not directly related, related to, to our, our holding. So those two were uh, some, some, somewhat of a, of a change, which in my own experience, since I was working at a, such a low level, it didn't have a big impact in my work. The, the, the difference in, in my work was that my, my payslip had a different name, but that's about it. <laughs> we were in the same office and we were working with the same people, with the same clients, doing the same projects. And so okay. the, the, other, the other part that was interesting, though, was the administrative part because, well, we got, essentially, we got fired and then we got rehired, which was great at, at administratively because you get a liquidation bonus. Because when you get fired in Mexico, Mexican laws protect the employee. So when you get fired, you get like this big bonus because you got fired. So out of the blue, everybody just got a big bonus because they got fired. <laughs> so that was great. And yeah, it was a really good year because of that. <laughs> and vacations were respected or did you start from zero? No, I, everything was respected. Vacations and, and, and uh, antiqu how do you say that? Antiquity? And... Time working. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I seniority, maybe. Seniority, that's the way. I'm not sure. So that, everything was respected. They were really, really um, beneficial in every sense to us. And on top of that, they gave us the the firing bonus, which was great. Okay, actually that's great because I would say maybe not that worth it if you're starting from zero, but if you're like all the human resources stuff is there plus yeah. the money, why not accept that? No, exactly. And there were people that had uh, 15, 20 years of seniority. And for those people, the liquidation bonus is proportional to the to the seniority. So the, the amount of time. So, so you, you get like, 20 days of pay per year of, of seniority, per year of, of time. So being able to monetize those those years, because that's a, um, by definition, that's an asset that you have, the antiquity you have on a company, but yeah. not necessarily you will execute it because some of those, um, some of those assets only get executed when you get fired, but not when you quit. When you quit, you don't get those. So if you quit, then you will just, you just lose them. So you, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not a real asset. But so most of those people that had so many years just, you know, got it. Um, they got a, an immediate monetization of the asset, which was, phew, those were fortunate. <laughs> In my case, it was not, not large enough, but still was much better than nothing. And what now the question will be, why did you change if you were, or maybe because you had a lot of cash and you wanted to experience something else? What made you change to Ernest & John? The opportunity. So once we changed to Accenture, at the beginning, nothing changed, but then slowly some things were changing. There was a difference in terms of the career path evolution and the philosophy of the leadership and Accenture that differ from the philosophy of the leadership at SBC. So those differences started making some people to change their, their, 
um, yeah, their priorities and to leave the firm. So there were other firms uh, snatching people and, and one of the partners that left from the Houston office left for EY. And so the, he, he wanted to create an energy practice in, in Mexico City. And so he needed energy experienced, quote unquote experience, because three or four years in my experience, I don't think it's, it's enough to, <laughs> to call myself an experienced hiree. But he wanted to create a, an energy practice. So he reached to his network and I was in his network. We, we had a really good relationship. So he's, he told me, come on, we're going we're, we're gonna to build up the energy practice in EY here in Mexico City. Uh, go through the recruitment process here and we'll make you an offer. And then when I went there, I, I went through the recruitment process. Uh, they really liked me. I, I had the first step in because one of the partners there, uh, we really knew each other. So they knew they knew how well I, I worked. And he then I, vouching, I... He was vouching for you very seriously. Exactly. Very seriously and very uh, very uh, uh, with efforts. So I was in a very good position to, to have a, a leveraged negotiation which I did. I, I negotiated both my economical compensation and my level of entry uh, really aggressively. I was really happy. I was really happy at Accenture, at, at, at SBC, especially because of the people, the culture was great. So for me to leave, it had to be really worth it, which it was. So the opportunity was just too good to, to turn down. And so that's why I, I decided to, to leave. Yeah, I, I remember still when, we, when you were talking to me, about that in your apartment and you were telling me that the best way to negotiate something for yourself is when you don't have the necessity to change so as you stated you were happy you were doing great at your current point so you had the advantage or this leverage to go for more so can you let us know more if you want on how did you uh, negotiate that because i think we always talk about negotiation on how to get better Uh, a raise or very positions, more responsibilities, but how would you recommend someone to uh, get more out of a situation like this? So uh, in my experience, there are a few points of negotiation on your career. And one of the most important of those points are when you're changing employers. So when you're within one firm and you're trying to grow and be promoted and whatnot, you have some leverage, but not as much as you have when when someone wants to hire you when when they have decided to hire you so that that is one of the first things to consider if you want to have leverage one of the points that you'll have most leverage is right at that moment before you go in after you've accepted and you've gone in and you've got your your salary and your whole package and whatnot then at that point that is very very hard to negotiate because you have much less leverage So having said that, when you are um, at, at the part where you need to start putting arguments down, there are a couple of things that helped me. One was to find as much information about the market, both the market and the position um, in terms of compensation. So how much is this level of responsibility, is this position worth? in the market, both in Mexico City and globally, because the, the way I would sell myself is I am capable enough to perform at this level globally. So I can I can work with teams globally. So then the position should be evaluated and should be valued 
at a global um, scale because uh, ma uh, labor markets are very different from geography to geography. So having a, a benchmark, uh, both in terms of the amount of information and the, the market value of that position, both in your place and in some other places, will give you a great point of reference. Then, then on, I think you need to, to be able to reach the point that they will say no. So the way that that happened to me was that I gave them a number that I was uh, willing to make the decision with, uh, a large number. And then after they came back with that number, I told them, okay, that's great. I want a larger bonus. And then I told them I want lar larger amount of vacation, larger. And then there was a point uh, at the bonus point, there was a point where, where they told me, okay, this is it. No more. That's as much as we can do. So. I wasn't afraid to receive a no. I I, I realized, I think it, it was probably because of the first point that you mentioned that I was happy enough that if the negotiations turned south, everything was all right. But that, that non-fear non and that aggressive push was one of the greatest, uh, probably one of the greatest advantages on the negotiation table. And once I got that no until here, this is as much as we can give, okay. I reached that point and then I, re I decided, yes, I'll take it. But I, I reached that point. More often than not, I think people leave money at the table because they are afraid of reaching that point, of reaching the point that, that you de demand more and you, you throw such a large number that you receive a no. At, you shouldn't be afraid of receiving a no. I mean, if you have enough benchmark information, if you have references, and if you can state how much value you'll be adding to the firm, what your responsibilities are going to be. There is no reason why throwing uh, your your number paired with these arguments. There's no reason why a no to that should be a problem. Okay, a no to that. Okay, then I'll go with the original proposal without that large bonus or whatnot. So yeah. Was, yeah, I don't think why we think that maybe if you throw a very large number, they will say no. You gotta go. We don't like you. See you. Yeah, that makes no sense. I mean, we are negotiating here. Why would they? I mean, they also have invested time. They also want you. So the, I, I just couldn't think of the scenario that if I say something that they say no, I couldn't think of the scenario that that would mean everything just falls apart. Why? Why would, I mean, we're negotiating. Okay, you say no. Okay. No. And it, I, it, in my experience, it, it never happens. You're negotiating and you say, okay, this is what I remand. And they say, okay, this is what's reasonable. If you say something that they feel that's not reasonable, it doesn't mean that the whole thing has to go south. That makes no sense to me. That, that means they lost a bunch of time they invested on recruiting you. And they need but, to start from zero and poof, it's just so expensive as well. Maybe they have a pool of candidates. That might be the case. But I, I don't think it's that at the level that you are, maybe at entry level, that will be the case that you have a pool of candidates. And if you have a very, let's say you have one guy at, let's say, 10 points and you have this other guy at nine points, you offer the guy at 10 points and then he goes, I need more cash. I want more, this and this. Then you say, well, maybe I go for the one with nine points. But at the level that you are, I'm pretty sure that you are like one tops two candidates for that job. Exactly, completely. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. This strategy is probably not worth it at an entry level. Definitely. Yeah. You need to know where you're standing, as you stated. That yeah. You know how much you're valuable, uh, your value in the market. And as you stated, you, you have no reason to go. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think no, completely. And and the, the other advantage that I had was that I realized how much time and effort they had they had spent on, on finding me, and that I I didn't know for sure, but I had a sense of how many people they were searching for because the industry is not that big. And so my own friends and and, and people were contacted by them, and I realized how many were interested and how many weren't. So I, I realized that it's it's not not as you said the, the pool of people that would be able to do that at that stage at that moment where it wasn't that big so yeah i, I didn't have much to lose by being very aggressive that's nice that's always something i say is always be looking for a job even if you don't want to change because yeah. if you get an offer you can always counter offer in the job that you are currently either if you like it or not that's another point but if you have an, an offer you can always say okay i got this offer I don't want to go. I really like this place. But if you are willing to add an extra, it doesn't need to be exactly the, the same offer as I'm getting outside. But at least give me either cash or give me more responsibilities. So, something that uh, makes you grow in the company and that they see that you're not there just like a pawn or a, I don't know, like a point in a machine that you want to grow there. That's very important. Yeah, no, completely. That that is a, a great reflection of of drive and ambition on a candidate, which is very often looked for and 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 well received. And now, Daniel, what did you did in Ernest and Young? Because I think that's not that into only oil and gas, or is it? No, it was uh, the well the, the 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 original meaning for me to go there was to start or work on their energy practice given my background, but the, the, what practically happened was when we had uh, projects that related the energy industry, I was w normally working on them, but when we didn't, since we didn't have a robust business development in the energy industry, we not always had one. So um, I would find myself working on any other industry half of the time. So I worked on, on retail industry. I worked, I did a great project on, on the I um, lens, what's what's the name? Oh, Oculus, uh, the market of glass sunglasses and, yeah. and <laughs> not sure exactly. what the name in English is. I got it. I got it. Yeah. So I did one great project in the Oculus. Let's say that way, Oculus market, and I did other couple of projects in in the motorcycle business, and then we did one crazy project with the. Um, religious people in Mexico City. That was a, a quote a kind of pro bono project, but it was very wide variety of issues. And it was sometimes it was fun, sometimes it was frustrating. Sometimes it was just something that I really didn't want to long term dedicate to. So that was partly one of the reasons uh, that I wasn't as, as motivated to grow long term there. But it was great at the beginning because it gave me the opportunity to perform as a project manager. So going back to the positions in consulting, as I was saying before, you get the analyst and consultant position. And then after that, you get a, a big change in responsibilities being a project manager. You're completely responsible of the project. And then you start having people reporting to you. And so in EY, when my first experiences, I had a, a, the first project I had was, was that uh, in, in the sunglasses and lens a market kind of project and i had two very very junior analysts report to me and that was very challenging um environment because they 
imagine just two people that are just out of university and don't know how to use Outlook. And it's the first time they, they you know, they send a work mail. So <laughs> it's that, that, it was, that's another topic to, to talk about. But yeah, I get it. <laughs> it was a great challenge. So that was one of the biggest differences, I'd say, that I had in my role there. And I think um, going back to the good lessons that you can take from that, that I could take from that experience and that that probably your listeners should should take is that uh, at some stage in your career, managing people and those soft skills become really, really important. And, and they are probably one of the hardest ones from a chemical engineering uh, type of profile because it, they are very soft skills and, and you need to motivate people. And typically these are smart people. If you're working on a, on a high, uh, high level or maybe not high level, but competitive uh, firm and even a plant or, dif or different environments, you'll probably work with smart people that you need to keep motivated. And so having these people um, perform at the, at the adequate level, but not, not pushing them too much, but at the same time, not giving them enough, enough um, place to just, just uh, do whatever they want or having also a personal relationship with them. And, and that, that whole combination of factors was really challenging for me. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges on growing your career at any, not only consulting, but any um, career path. If you want to be uh, an, an employee, and probably it's a, completely different world being an entrepreneur but going an employee and if you want to go to the managerial path which is probably one of the highest probability paths of growing you require those skills and those skills are the hardest are one of the hardest challenges to develop so that, yeah. would you say it's hardest for you or let's say for me that we don't have that much but would you say there's people that get get it easy that they have that uh, i don't know that soft skill area cover no, completely. You're right. It's it's probably a biased uh, biased uh, judgment that I'm giving. It's a the the way that I experienced it. It was really hard for me because my profile is much more focused on the hard skills, analytical skills, and all of the structural things that we were discussing at the beginning. And these soft skills and people interacting skills are not my strengths. So, um, however, they are just as much or maybe even more necessary as you grow so that's why they were harder for me however there's probably uh people that are more are more aligned with these skills and that will find it much easier to manage other people and those people are just going to be great project managers and they should exploit those those um strengths and and become great managers as fast as they can and then manage larger and larger projects and and show those strengths because those strengths are very very highly valued on the market Exactly. The, the leadership skill is very scarce and valuable. Yeah, highly, highly valuable. Okay. And Daniel, uh, I know that you were only there for one year and a half. Were you maybe regretting going from Accenture to Ernest & Young because of the change of industry and that? Or did you always know that you can change easily of industry or company? Uh, you, you raise a good point there. No, I did not regret it. I think the opportunity was completely worth it. I I did validate the small doubt in my mind that I had that if I could transition from the from the energy industry into any other industry, which which I confirmed with this experience. It not not voluntarily, but 
I, I did confirm it. And so that sort of gives me a little bit of peace of mind that I'm capable to adapting at other industries. So that's, that's, that was good news for me. So that was another great lesson that I learned. But, but the, I guess your question comes because um, the amount of time was not large enough to... Oh, no, not, not really about the amount of time, but you were said, telling me that the industries or things you were doing were not that into your actual, let's say, area of expertise or let's say comfort zone, or not comfort zone, the, the, the industry that you have been working on for several years. So that's my question. Yeah, no, completely. And so when I was uh, forced to work at an industry which wasn't my priority to develop long term, I did feel somewhat a frustration. And that was less frequent than the, the cool stuff that I wanted to do and that I wanted to work with. But still, it was something like, for, let's say, 40% of the time. So going to my next my next uh, job, which was a, which is at my current job at Wood Mackenzie, uh, this this was one of the strongest motivators, just as as well as as a great opportunity that that um, that showed up in my in my in my career. The the other motivator was so one one is the fact that the opportunity was available, and the other one was the forty percent of the time that I wasn't working on the actual content that I wanted to work long term. So that that is completely agreed on on your on the way you put it that it's not. It's not the topic that I want to develop in long term, this this percentage of the time. However, the the valuable part of that is on the other side of the the same coin is that okay, I can work in that and and I'm not a useless <laughs> I'm not a useless <laughs> consultant even if it's a different industry. However, it's not in my priority to develop um, in different industries. Uh, the energy industry is just so huge and and it just has so many great challenges in the future with the climate change and the energy transition that there's enough there to work your ass off for the next 40 or 50 years to just stay there. So but Daniel, that's, that's not as exciting as getting sunglasses. <laughs> exactly. <Is it? laughs> no, actually the, the, the sunglasses project was so different in terms of glamour. I mean, I went to interview many, many companies of sunglasses and many of these are very high luxury companies. So, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, and all of these companies. I, I went to their company, to their headquarters in Mexico City and, and got to meet people. And I you were sitting at the most beautiful offices with sunglasses in the in the walls, and you would see a beautiful model walking by, and it's just insane how much glamour there is. And that was a great experience because it was completely different for imagine imagine that contrast with going to a a freaking oil offshore platform with a bunch of bunch of big dudes just working on their orange suits in the oil fields on and you know it's like pff, such yeah, a different the, contrast so that, that was really an interesting um way of, of amplifying my, my perspective okay okay yeah definitely it's engineering sexy versus standard sexy exactly <laughs> okay so daniel and right now with mckenzie what do they do what do you do and what's your current job position so um, yeah, I was I was saying at the beginning, it's a research firm, core businesses research, and and they we sell subscriptions, and that's about eighty percent of the business. Twenty percent of the business is uh, bespoke consulting. I'm a bespoke. I mean that they are very specific analysis to answer specific questions, most typically at asset valuation, strategy level, and and more 
uh, performance improvement kind of uh, questions for, for the clients. Most of our clients are big oil companies, big mining companies, electrical companies, and most of the challenges that we are now trying to solve are more and more related to the energy transition, which is one of the greatest one of the greatest challenges that I think society is going to face. By energy transition, I mean the transformation of sources of energy that's going to be required to stop climate change, to be carbon neutral. So clean energy sources, another way of putting it. So how to, because we as a society consume so much energy and we require so much energy to function and, and not only to function, but if we want to grow economically, which is somewhat questionable. I'm not sure if that's something we should pursue, but if we want to grow economically, there is going to be a increasing requirement of obtaining very efficient sources of energy from carbon neutral ways. So all of this challenge, it's, it's impressive how all of this challenge replicates across different parts of the industry. I mean, this challenge, of course, directly impacts oil and gas companies, but not only them, but it also impacts mining companies. Because if you want to electrify everything, if you want to use electric cars, you will require a lot of batteries. And if you want batteries, you will require a lot of nickel and lithium and different minerals that require a different scale on different minings. And if you want to do mining in a carbon neutral way, you'll require to use secondary materials much more efficiently than primary. And by secondary, I mean how to recycle on wasted batteries much more efficiently than, than getting new resources from the ground. So you need to balance those two out. So, so I, and I'm going just to weigh into the, into the wits there, but the, the whole idea going back on the high level is that this, this big, huge energy transition challenge that we're facing, it's, it's probably going to require a very big amount of intellectual of, of intellectual power because it requires a paradigm shift in the way th things are done so so that's i think that's one of our most common um, challenges that we face and and the companies hire us to um, answer the question as to how to go through that energy transition in a profitable way or in a less costly way? Or how do I start? Because there are many companies around the world that don't even see it coming. They they they, they understand that it's coming, but don't even uh, are doing nothing yet. And they feel like they can stay the same, but it's not, it's not the reality. I mean, probably regulation is going to force a lot of companies to create uh, new processes or to make a lot of sacrifices. And the, the companies that have not started or are not yet at that are probably both going to either, sorry, either going to be broke because they're right. not able yeah. to adapt or, or be forced out of business out of regula regulatory reasons. So going back to, to the question of what we're doing, it's, it's mostly working on these big problems. It's, it's, it's insane, but it's, it, they are huge problems. And so there's a lot of, of, of work there. But would you say that you are like foreseeing the change so your clients get time to adapt or would you say it's already happening and you are helping them to transition as fast as possible? Oh, it's already happening. It's definitely already happening. Um, the, 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 the pace at which change is happening is not fast enough. That's, the, that's one of the problems. The other problem is that most of the companies that are on the industry are not completely in control 
of of what uh, what happens and what doesn't happen because there is a certain amount of demand of commodities and of energy that it's in control of downstream industry. So so if you if you see the value chain as energy producing upstream, midstream, downstream, in that those three terms can be applied to many different industries, both mining, uh, oil and gas, chemicals, and, uh, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the downstream part, the society consumes so much that they leave no choice for the upstream producing energy. They leave no choice. So there is a, a, a big part that is not on the control of the upstream part. However, the, the rate at which change is required on every single part of the value chain is not, is not fast enough. And I think there's probably going to be a combination of factors that will probably force that rate to be fast enough. And that is going to be both in terms of corporate, corporate world, so the, both corporate Americas, corporate Europe, and the development leading nations setting the example for the rest of the world, and authoritative governments and regulatory governments. So there will be corporate America and corporate Europe making large decisions in change, which they are doing. You have you probably have seen lots of announcements of energy companies and non-energy companies saying, we are going to go carbon neutral by yeah. 2030, by 2050. And they always like these round numbers that are either ending at zero or at five. And this, this, this carbon neutrality is just it's usually motivated both by economical sense and by a PR sense, but in a in a more deep level, it's just a matter of humanity surviving, and it's it's definitely required uh, at all industries. So, so going back to the question, I think the 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 impulse will come from corporate Americas and corporate Europe and regulatory change in large authoritative countries such as China, Russia, and Latin America, because those countries are much more behind in terms of their corporate priorities. So one example would be our national oil company here in Mexico or our, our electrical um, company. They are not yet thinking about renewables. They are not thinking about climate change. They're just so far behind. They will require to be strong-handed by regulatory pressure or by social, social pressure. And that's probably applicable in many other developing economies. So I think that's those two factors are going to drive the pace of the change so so you are working mostly with companies abroad or are you working with companies in mexico i am uh the first year and a half i worked with companies here in mexico both um, pemex the national oil company and a couple of others but now uh my the last year and a half so I, i've been three almost three years here at wood mackenzie the first year and a half i had that and the second year and a half i've been working with com with companies in the united states and canada uh mostly in mining mm -hmm. okay that's very hardcore pollution there yeah yeah okay that sounds great so do you feel overall great for your job that you're doing a great thing for the environment or do you also have this little uh, dot say working with companies that are very pollutant what what do you feel or how do you cope with that guilt if there is any yeah i think the uh, there is probably i should be more guilty i feel no guilt whatsoever even if i am even if i am working on a project that is not related at all to carbon emissions or energy transition i feel zero guilt 
I don't know why. I'm not sure. I probably should feel some guilt, but I feel zero. I don't know why. I really enjoy it. So, yeah, I, I, I should, but I don't. <laughs> okay, no, no, it's fine. Because I just was wondering if you like have this feeling. Because uh, as I told you, I was talking with uh, Gerardo, and he has this, let's say, company, which is producing sugar food or snacks for kids and so and yeah. i also was wondering if he felt like guilty in working in this type of industries and he had other sets of... the... <laughs> I, i will not display the answer you need to check out the episode when i launched it yeah nice But it was very interesting i i did found it interesting very creative as well but i i also think it's what the, the company values uh are because they think or they know it's an issue and as you said it's PR uh, you need to work with that and the all the employees need to think as well as the company is treating this issue right yeah no completely yeah I think uh, you 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 kind of can tell you can smell bullshit from miles away so when it's just a PR issue when it's just a, a PR motivated change and it's purely PR and nothing else uh, it's, it's it's not It's not going to succeed long term. It's not going to be sustainable. If it's if it's a PR, but also a more deeply a fundamental exactly, issue, fundamental intention of improving society, then then it has a much higher probability of working long term. Okay, okay. And I don't know if you want to add something else to your work experience or business consulting, because I have several questions regarding your profile. No, no. I think we've we've covered plenty. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I also think we have been covering good things about uh, business. Ah, yeah. I want to ask you this: What would you say overall is the balance, or why business consultant is so killed in the sense of working on burning out and doing extreme hours? Why would you say it's common in the business consultant world? I'd say it's common because. There is typically a requirement of learning for everybody, for for every single project. There is a learning requirement because every project is new or either is new or the people is not familiar enough with the industry or the topic or the client. So there is there is a factor there that it's uh, by definition, the type of work that we do cannot allow us to have experience on every single topic that we will face because that would require too much time to have been dedicated to different projects. So we will always find new projects that we'll have to learn. And so there's a, and that learning is not paid by the client because why should it? The client is is paying you to solve the question, not, not to have the analysts or consultants or, or manager or whoever in the team, not for them to learn about you or the industry and whatnot. So that has to go on your own time and it's not quote unquote billable. So it's not paid. So that part always sort of pushes the time limits. Uh, and so that's when the ability to quickly learn and familiarize yourself for a new industry becomes very valuable in the sense that it will determine somehow your work-life balance. So that's one part. The other part, I would say, depends on the culture of the office. And of course, the culture of the firm. But I was, as I was saying before, there's differences in the same firm within different offices. So 
um, Wood Mackenzie has a different culture in Mexico City than in Houston, than in New York, etc. So the culture of the office and the works, the style, the style of the manager determines also the the work-life balance. There are some boundaries, and there is always an 80-20 to be done. And what I mean by an 80-20 is that there's always uh, an amount of effort that is ideally the 20% of the effort will give you 80% of the results that you want. And the, and the last 20% of the results is going to require a much, much deeper understanding, a much more deeper analysis and a much wider uh, information gathering, etc. that just isn't it has a diminishing return. So being able to wisely cut, rigorously cut that um, that diminishing return efforts also contributes in 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 the work style and work life balance. Most most cultures, most offices, will try to strive for the hundred percent perfectionist and accuracy. Uh, trying to get as much as possible because the overachieving is very well viewed both inside, both competitively with your peers to, to get uh, promoted and very well viewed for the client point of view. But in other cultures, in other offices and in other management styles, they will value the the work the work life balance that you get by focusing on the on the top 20 priorities that give you the 80% of the result and then the 20% rest of results opportunistically approaching and that would might give um, not the best outcome always but just good enough to send the same messages to to arrive to the same decisions and could be sustainable so in my experience i have much I have largely done it in that way, in the way that I try to see where to make the cut that efforts are giving me diminishing returns. And by doing that, I've been able to save lots of time and to maintain a very sustainable work-life balance. So I think that's why there's very different uh, senses and, and very typically um, are more people are more focused on getting the 100%. Okay. Yeah, I also think it's also a filter, right? The a lot of people will not uh, sustain that lifestyle. Like you were telling me about your brother, he did not wanted to go with that. Yeah. And even if you don't want to like accept that style, or maybe you are you have other options. And I think it's always a deal breaker that, and of course, being having the capabilities of uh, getting that type of job, but also sustaining. And going through all these very extreme hours and works, I think is very makes the profile more unique. That's true, but I think uh, it's a bullshit filter. I don't think people should be filtered in terms of how much stress or pressure or agony they are willing to accept. I think, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think uh, as I was saying, just being wise enough to understand where you're getting diminishing returns. I think that's more valuable. Okay. Okay. Nice. I just wanted to get out that of a man, my mind. I wanted and I wanted to know your point of view. Hmm. But okay. And one thing I want to ask you because I typically know that, or I would say the typical way to continue a business consultant career is going and ticking that box of getting your MBA in the USA or maybe in UK or 
any top university for MBAers. So my question to you is, would you think, because I know that you haven't got an MBA, do you think it's crucial to have an MBA for your uh, career path? Do you think it's something that you need to tick off eventually? Or will you say it's only a boost or a booster that might help you, but it's not 100% required? I think it's very career dependent. So it's uh, case by case, which career path you you want, it can or cannot be a, a great decision. Um, I would say that the trend is that it's less and less required to advance. And having a very, very expensive MBA is probably long term is probably not going to be required as most of the academic content that you can get, you can you can get it for free, really. You can really learn anything for free on the internet. So that's that's one big disadvantage that MBAs are getting. But the other part, the, the networking part and the contacts part, it's it's increasingly decentralizing. So I think as as relationships are built and contradicting the first part of the big cities we were saying before, but the 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 decentralization of relationship making by going online is probably going to decrease the attractiveness of, of an MBA uh, over the long term. However, um, at many many firms, it's a required it's a required step, and especially if you're coming from chemical engineering and coming from the industry, and if you want to transition into consulting as a experienced hiree, a great way of doing it is going to an MBA. And if you're going to an MBA, you want to go into top GMC, you have to go to the best MBAs uh, in the country. So if you go to the US, you want to go in Ivy League. If you go to London, to um, England or to UK, you need to go to either London Business School or, or London School of Economics or et cetera. So you, you need to go to top, top companies because that's, that's the, the protocol and the way. However, I don't think it's going to be this way in the long term. So, yeah. Yeah, me too. I think university degrees are going to get each time not useless, but not that relevant for your actual field. And actual skills are going to get more important. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for sharing that because I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of people thinking I gotta eventually make my MBA in order to get my career successful. And I think you are a good example of that not being the case. Yeah. And I do. do you plan, actually, do you plan to eventually study an MBA or would you say you're already past your, uh, let's say, your requirements? Yeah. I don't I don't plan on doing it. I don't think I need it. I, I Once I achieved a project manager position or a management responsibility position and I consolidated there, there is no need. I The jump that I would get from an MBA I have already managed to do it, and there is plenty, plenty of places to be able to do this, and it's going to increase these type of opportunities, and and the type of people without an MBA going to the higher places is probably going to increase. So I, yeah, I don't think I'll do it. I don't think I'll need it. That's great. Hopefully, you stay there, and more people keep uh, your example as a way to go, because not it's not that MBA will bring your career. It's because many of the people, I think, study that because they think it's going to fix or boost artificially their uh, CV or their life. And it's not the case. It's only a tool that is valuable, yes, but it's not going to fix your life. It's not going to land you great jobs. 
or maybe yes, but will not make you retain your um, that job. It's only a tool that if you use it well, you will take advantage of it. And if you don't use it, you will not be able to get value out of it. Absolutely. Agreed. Okay, Daniel. And I have one question that I told you I was going to cover and is about job jumping because I see your curriculum or your resume and you have a lot of, let's say, experiences, a lot of companies, a lot of uh, jobs. What would you say to that? Let's say I'm your future uh, uh, boss and I'm asking you that. Why do you have a lot of changes? Are you not loyal to a company or do you don't like the jobs? What would you answer in this case? So what I, what I would generally say is that you need to be really clear on, on the narrative that explains your history. So each person has different narrative, a different history. And we are storytellers and we like stories. And through stories, we communicate much more efficient and, and much better. So my, in, my, in, in my own experience and in my case, the story that I tell or the, the, the way that happened is because of, of the networking that I created on the first job opportunity that I had. So all of my, all of my jumping opportunities that I had had resulted of a great networking of people that I that I worked with within the industry in the first in the first three three to four years of, of my employee at SBC. So the partner that that pulled me to Ernst and Young was a partner that I worked with um, at SBC, and then the opportunity of Wood McKenzie showed up to me because a similar situation developed. A partner from SBC was hired by Wood McKenzie. And and they 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 needed people to create their energy practice and they worked I worked with with him already and he knew me and so he presented the opportunity to me. So it's not a a, a matter of of me jumping from ship to ship. It's more of a matter of that I created such a strong networking and a close networking of very high achieving people within the industry that reached higher levels in different companies that the paths were open because of this networking. So it was a uh, a different partner pulling me back to work with him instead of me jumping off a ship. Okay, that's actually a great answer. And well, I don't know, because I'm not a recruitant, I don't know what will be the, the analysis of that answer, but I'm pretty sure that as you stated, you got to be honest and tell them the truth. Just what's your... Better, yeah. Yeah, what's your narrative? And yeah, I think it's way easier rather because I know that you are not changing because it's a boring thing for you or because you want to uh, keep earning more income. It's because you want to create a career path that is successful. Completely. And talking about career path, Daniel, do you want, or what's your, let's say, middle term goal? Do you want to become a manager, director, uh, a partner? Do you want to open your own uh, business consulting. What's how do you see yourself in let's say five to ten years? I would like to work for the next five to ten years in consulting because it's a very high-paying job, very intellectually rewarding, and very um, stimulating and challenging, and etc. All, all of the good things that I that I have stated before. But after that, after that five to ten, I think five to ten is realistic. I am probably going to scale down in terms of intensity and try to go as a 
as an advisor kind of way, as an expert advisor, that would be my ideal, my ideal kind of role. So having having that amount of experience working as a as a sort of external advisor of an expert advisor or a board advisor, something that requires much less time but but grabs a very high value amount of judgment and experience in the interaction that would be my ideal position so i see myself as achieving as much as i can in consulting and then scaling back and pivoting to a more of an external advisor kind of role that sounds great uh, i hope you achieve that and i'm pretty sure you will and let's see if i can interview you in five to ten years and hopefully you tell us much more enriching stories yeah i hope as well so daniel though that was the interview and i don't know if you want to add something else or some tips, or shall we pass to the quick questions? Yeah, quick quick questions are. Okay, let's see. So let's start with student or study life. So if you could change your uh, syllabus or the course you took in bachelor level university, what would you change or add? You mean uh, academically, right? No, it can, yeah, I mean, you can select a course or something Maybe labs or maybe even make, I don't know, sports mandatory or going to, I don't know, whatever thing. Let's say that you're redesigning the course or syllabus for yourself. What would you add or remove or change? I would definitely add more programming or software related skills or at the very least something formally in Excel and or Tableau and or something that is very very useful in in the professional career that one and i would add more uh financial um yeah financial subjects because they are universally applied everywhere so both programming and finance are i think the most important parts okay nice yeah i also think programming is definitely important and finance may, maybe yeah it's also important uh, actually Taking accounting was one of my best courses back in the day. And I, I still remember that I was wondering why the hell was <laughs> I taking that. <laughs> but right now, I really appreciate it. Exactly. I think we probably were frustrated as it had nothing to do with the core of our career. But in real life, it's just so necessary that pff, it's very useful. Yeah, exactly. What would you say is something overrated in chemical engineering or in the industry? Let's say, for example, I don't know. Going green, it, you say, nah, that's super overrated because uh, oil and gas is still relevant and we have a lot of products. Or something that you would say, nah, that's that's something that we say a lot, but it's not actually that important. So I think uh, the ability to, to actually design process plans and all of that, that we, we work too much into that within uh, academically, the ability to do that, it's... It's very important, but I think it's overrated in the sense that it's much more important to to practically do it in a, in an actual job. So you one one thing is the probability that you will end up doing that it's very low. But let's say that that's the reason you want to go into chemical engineering, right? So okay, so say that the pro, given the probability is low, it's it makes the importance less. But but leaving that aside, the the reality is that once you actually do it, that once you practice and, and create an actual process and realize how much the reality really affects, uh, 
you realize that perfecting the design of a process or the mathematics behind the process is not that important. It's much more important to practice, to do it, do it, do it in the reality and to and to find that that experience and God is, is much probably much more relevant um, when actually doing it. Okay, yeah, that's true. I would say actually doing is way better than just learning to do. Exactly. Doing stuff is... Like you shut you shut people's mouth if you do rather than know how to do. This question is very interesting because I don't know the answer. So Daniel, what would you study other than chemical engineering? If you can could go back in time knowing what you know right now. I would study behavioral economics. Wow. I would that's I think it's just an such a such an interesting how do people behave with money? And how does that shape economics and investing in general? It's just so interesting because I think um, investing and economics and all of that, it's it moves moves the world. The money moves the world, and and it's it's not the study of of of, the, of finance or money or the, it's just the study of how people behave with money. That's the real reason the way. Um, the way the stock market moves, the way it does, and, and the way that the, there's these mini bubbles and there's large bubbles and these crazy movements. So that would be so interesting to go into. That's interesting. I, I'm not that into economics, but definitely it's always important that the previous series will say that the human will make very rational decisions. Exactly. But the reverse is true. It's much more emotional. It's all emotional. Yeah. That's cool. So do you still use chemical engineering or overall engineering references from uh, university or do you use no reference at all? I do use um, very basic references. So I use mass balances in many of my projects. So to, to understand a basic mass balance of, of the process that we're evaluating for, a, for an asset that we're evaluating, also relevant and to very quickly understand what the mass balance is is, is very common to, to, to use. Energy balances as well, but that's much less um, detailed because it's there are so many more variables that is not required to be modeled in detail. But more complex than that is, is very, very unlikely. Okay, okay. What was the subject that you suffered the most or that you had the worst, uh, I don't know, develop, uh, how to say, overall uh, enjoyment that you hated? Oof. A singular subject. Well, you can say block of subjects or... I hated the writing ones, the, the beginning ones. Uh, you had to write a bunch of essays. I can't remember the name. Taev, was it? I yeah. really those. But that's why, because I sucked at writing, and, and I think it's very important. You need to communicate clearly, written, any any at any job. So that's very important. But I really hated it. I think you hate what you're bad at. So if you want to like something, become good at it. You're gonna like it. <laughs> True, yeah. Especially if you don't like it, because sometimes you may be bad, but you want to improve and you will enjoy it. Like cooking. If you want to get better at cooking, you will enjoy the process of improvement. Yeah, going to the gym, doing some gaming, yeah. running, just become better at it. You'll be enjoying it in no time. Okay, Daniel. So 
Right now, the pandemic, the pandemic, as you know, has been hitting a lot of people, especially young graduates. Uh, lots of students have been losing internships and worst, lots of students that are either recent graduates or have been looking for a job uh, in one semester, one year and haven't had any luck. So what will be your tip to get a job? If you were them back in, let's say you're recently graduate looking for a job, what will be your best advice? So I would um, I would reach my network in terms of uh, I realize going out of, of university you don't have a, a large professional network but you always know people and this is in in my experience the best way of getting the best jobs was through people I knew so reach reach on your network reach on your on your LinkedIn reach out to people that you don't know and present yourself be proactive and try to increase your network. Through your network is probably the best way of, of, of getting opportunities. Besides that, I would say that you, you're going to require some patience because processes are much slowly moving at, at these stages because there is so much uncertainty and so many firms are having volatility in their performance. So they, they might have recoveries, they might not have as strong recoveries as expected. So processes are going to be delayed. So Patience is probably going to be required. Um, and the third thing that I might add is, um, yeah, not, not sure, actually. I, I used I, I lost my train of thought. I had a third thing, but yeah, let's just go with it. <laughs> I think I also recommend the same. Make use of your network and more importantly, work on it. And I, I say this also for people that's starting in studying. Start working from now on in increasing your networking and not only increasing in numbers, but also in interactions and quality interactions. Mm, definitely. Agreed. Okay. Let's change to professional life. And I have just a curiosity. What was your first non-chemi job if you had? I Well, I worked with my, my parents' family business when I was in high school. So I would say that not sure if that counts as a, as a formal job. If not that one, then at my first consulting job at, at my last year of university. Uh, I think the very first one was the one I wanted to hear and I was pretty sure it was going to be something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And what this, this is a great question and it's focused towards students, but I want to change it then. What would you expect from a recent graduate from chemical engineering if he wanted to go into business consulting? So let's say you told us that you were working with those two uh analyst what would you expect them to do or how what what is the best profile or description that you can give to to the hr people so they look for that so i would say that the first thing would be this the core consulting skills the, the strong the strong skills quote unquote not not the soft ones so so the analytics problem structuring communication skills both written and and spoken those will be the basics but apart from that, uh, something actionable would be to show interest, to show motivation, to have uh, have researched both the firm and the type of role that consulting is. So someone, a successful candidate, will not only have those uh, core skills that we have discussed throughout the interview, but it, he, he or she would have understood what consulting means 
would have clear motivations as to why they want to go in and and would show for it by asking the correct questions and asking as much questions as possible and being driven and to show that hunger for going in which is typically as, as people when people fit the profile they are very driven and they show that hunger so i would say that that's a very good um quality to to action on yeah it's true actually going for more without being asked and doing more without like pressuring people it's always a great asset or to have in the workplace yeah okay so this one is interesting do you consider yourself a leader yes or no yes i do consider okay. I have to. If yeah, I, I will consider yourself uh, a leader as well. Uh, now, how do you become a leader? Wow, that's, that's a very broad question. But I would I would say it depends on what kind of leader you want to become. But in in the same train of thought that we have discussed here, I would say that you would need to to balance out the skill sets of the very core consulting that we have uh, said over and over with the more people managing and selling skills that is required to to create new business so in in, in consulting selling new projects becomes a very senior responsibility but it it's a, a necessary ability that you require to become a leader because new business fits the whole thing so being able to to sell and being able to manage people are probably two of the hardest skills that a leader requires to develop once you have developed a strong um, foundations. Okay, yeah, it's interesting way to see that. And yes, I will say also it depends on which type of leader you want to become, which I will say depends on your person or type. Yeah, on your on your personality as well. Yeah, completely. Okay, so what subject of chemical engineering you use the most i think you already commented on that but just for the sake of uh repeating that yeah it's it's probably mass balance but i would say that um momentum transfer and heat transfer both not in terms of the academic context but the modeling exercise that we had the chance to do in our in our subject so you in in tech de monterrey you would require to develop an excel model in those in either of those two with a, with a particular professor if, if you if you remember but that that specific modeling oof i think that's so much useful in 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 the professional life because excel is your life i mean you use excel for everything so modeling being successful at excel modeling will get you 80% of the way in most projects. Okay, that was pretty straightforward. So great. And this question is also interesting. How often do you use the Laplace transform or do you ever use it at work? <laughs> Never, not once. <laughs> However, it's good that I know what it is because because I have found jokes about it and people, other chemical engineering people within the firm use stuff like that, very, very specific stuff just to make jokes other people don't understand. So that's good. <laughs> that's, that's talking about the filters. That will be a great filter. And I imagine <laughs> being there in your business case, uh, <laughs> an interview and tell him, okay, you need to do the Laplace transform for the following <laughs> process. <You laughs> they, will, oh, fuck. 
Yeah, the interview will just completely panic on the spot <laughs> or, or or laugh and, and understand that's what you're talking about, which would be a great sign. <laughs> exactly. That will be a good filter. That, it will be pretty interesting to see the answer of the student. Oh, not the student, the one that's applying. It is it is actually really fun to be on this side of the interviewing process because you get to do all those. I, I mean, I create my own interview case. I create it with whatever crazy shit I, I want or with whatever um, things that apply to reality or things that do not. I just, and you want to test, to test him. So it's such an interesting experiment to create. And you get to interview so many candidates that you can test different things. And yeah, that's one of the perks. <laughs> yeah, that's also funny. You have a nice time. And I'm pretty sure you can also learn from other fellow uh, interviewees. All the time, yeah. Okay, what do I have? Okay, this one is great because I think that you are in an industry that is forcing the, this type of changes. So what do you think is the future of chemical engineering as the industry 4.0 is starting to develop? I think uh, in by the risk of repeating uh, a little bit of what I was saying before, I, I think the future is just going to be very focused in in climate change. I think it's just going to be what is the best way of creating um, all of the chemical processes and, chemi and engineering processes and what is the best way of creating this in a, in a non-carbon way, in a neutral carbon emissions way, how best to create circular economies, how best to, to use the resources that you have the most efficiently and, and what is the the best way to reach this carbon neutral society that we want. So it's probably all going to be around that. And that probably replicates not only in the core chemical engineering process, but in all of the processes. As I was saying before, there is a, a broad application of this energy transition towards all of the natural resources um, sector. So it's probably the same for chemical engineering. It's, it's going to be for momentum transfer, for heat transfer, for mass transfer. It's going to apply differently in each of these uh, large core fields, but it's probably going to apply in all of them. Okay, that, that's a nice analysis. Ho hopefully we get through this without a lot of work losses, but let's see how it uh, develops. Yeah, no, I think uh, I am I am very optima, op, optimistical about uh, society's capabilities of adapting. I have I have seen studying history and understanding the way societies um, behave that people are just very very um, capable of adapting and changing the way they live in order to survive. However, I think there are levels of survival that we're willing to accept that we shouldn't, and I think that's that where the lies the problem. Mm -hmm, that's true. We should not accept the status quo, always more. Okay. Talking about this or being optimistic, do you think the world is going to last enough before we destroy it? Or do you think we are going to maybe have the solution eventually and end up with our normal lives? I think it's society will not destroy the world. I think what we're doing is we're destroying ourselves. The world will adapt. Whether we survive or not, the world will adapt and, and, and there will be species that will adapt and will survive if the climate change is not reversed. So 
for, for your first question, the world will not be destroyed. It's going to remain. The question is whether society will remain or not. And so that, that goes to your second question. Your second question was, if society remains, is it going to be the same or not? I think it definitely will not be the same. We cannot sustain a level of consumption that we're doing in the way we're doing it for, for much longer. At least we cannot sustain the level of consumption of developed countries to be replicated by the rest of the world, by undeveloped countries. It's, it's just not sustainable and that has to change. So the way we live, it's definitely going to change. I don't think um, long-term, it's, it's, the world will not be able to sustain society consuming as much as developed countries consume for the, for the emerging economies. So the, the way that changes is that not only emerging economies do not consume as much as developed countries, but developed countries stop, stop consuming and start uh, well, not consuming and not, not doing as many stupid shit as people are doing. So, sorry, I'm not sure if I can swear here. Or if that counts as a share, so uh, as a swears. But, but going back, I think the, the idea is that definitely cannot live the way we're normally living. We have to con just, let, I, I would say one, one thing, just walk. People should just walk more. People should live in, in smaller places and just, you know, stop driving as much. Just walk, take a bike. <laughs> that would be a big change. <laughs> okay. uh, what do you think about eating beef? Ah, uh, yeah. I, personally, I love beef, so that's very hard for me to answer. I realize it's one of the one of the large drivers of, of carbon emissions. But then there is an internal conflict in my heart because I really love it. I am very, very fond of beef and it's one of my favorite meals. So what I would say is that I would push, and I realize it's very hard to escalate, but I would push sustainable ways of growing beef, just free or uh, grass-fed beef that if, if there is a way of producing beef in a, in a way that the soil is not permanently damaged. I think there is. And you just have free beef, uh, free cows, um, grass-fed, and they they also contribute to the sustainability of the soil. I think that that way, it's, it's a great way of, of producing meat for, for consumption. However, I realize that there is a scalability problem there and there's not maybe there's not enough spaces everywhere to to do that but i think there is a way of, of doing at it i'm not that's not my area of expertise but if there would be a way i would definitely support it and and yeah the the lab lab created meat i am very doubtful of that because it uses so many vegetable oils that are not great for the body so pff, I, i'm not sure that's the long-term answer but yeah at least it's something okay. i love how you were like trying to solve the problem and then discussing yourself the solutions. So that's great. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. So let's pass to random fact questions. And what do you use to get active at the workplace? Coffee, uh, beer, tea, water? Definitely tea. coffee all the time. Definitely coffee. Uh, on, on, on our office, uh, it's a great uh, a great setting. We, we get to drink beers if we want to later on Fridays, especially. They're, they give us pizza if we want. They give us some snacks. and pff, they, just, they just treat us like freaking kings. So I, that's, well, that's one of the perks of, of the industry. It's just so much 
they they give you so much you know once once like every two months they hire a masseuse to give you massages massages yeah i don't know how to say it sounds kind of french so yeah so the the, these perks mostly coffee but the the interactions and the ability to have once in a while a beer just it's a great thing that massage thing i also think is also great i think it really definitely okay and what hobbies do you have and which hobbies do you want to maybe develop or at least have like you see yourself having in the future like playing an instrument or something like that so i think you want to be a renaissance man you want to be great at professional life but you also want to be great at performing physically so you want to train strength training and do endurance training so uh, on this pandemic we were discussing before the podcast i've been dedicated to much more fitness so i've been doing like one hour and a half or two hours of workout both in the gym and then playing squash every day so that's been great and eating well and and i think you you have to have some artistic hobby as well i play the piano and i really like that i i should be practicing more but sometimes uh i i don't find enough motivation although i think motivation is something that comes most of the time after you take action so as we were discussing before if you go to the gym you start taking action and then you get motivated so you don't have to wait to be motivated to do something but uh, at, at the moment, I think with the physical activity and professional development is just about enough. If involving a third, I would say artistic or spiritual development would be great. Although I don't have any of those at the moment. Okay. Yeah. I also think, I think like you, you we got to become more like the Renaissance man that has a lot of inquiry in the areas of knowledge and sports, music, music artistic, spirituality, yeah, uh, exactly. relationships. Yeah. yeah, actually, I miss the gym because they closed it since the pandemic. But I have been doing yoga, which has been working for me, uh, and doing hi- some hiking. Uh, I haven't been able to play the saxophone as often as I wanted to, but something I need to work on. So I think those hobbies they have an effect on your brain, and they can reflect on the way your performance works on other parts of life. So it's it's very important to approach the as a, a holistic approach to have different sense because of that improvement in different areas of life. Okay, yeah, that's great input from you, Daniel. So those were the quick questions and answer. I'm uh, really uh, glad that you answered them without problems. Sometimes we have some guests that have problems answering, but that mm-hmm. was like great. So let's pass to the closure. Daniel, I don't know if you want to add something like a closing statement for all those listening, maybe students, lots of, I, I have, I, I was checking the analytics. There's a lot of people from 21 to 34 years old uh, listening to the podcast. It's a 80% male, 20% female distribution. So I don't know if you want to address them. Yeah, what I would say is, um, well, I, I am at the same age cohort as you have described. We, we both are. And I say that apart from all of the professional and, and personal topics that we have discussed, the other thing that I would say is very, very important is to achieve financial independence. So at that age, uh, one of the most important things you, ha- you, you can do is start investing, start investing both in yourself in learning, in courses, in, in getting new hobbies, but also if you have and if you're capable of investing, actually investing in, in the stock markets or the bond markets or just like recreate 
as, as fast as you can a way to start investing in your future, in your retirement, in your financial independence. So when I say retirement, I don't mean that you don't work. I mean that you can leave work if you want. So you are independent. So I think at that age, I, the, the, the other thing, apart from the professional things that we have discussed, I would say is start investing as fast as you can, because later on, you'll be thanking yourself. Okay, thank you, Daniel. That's a great tip, actually. Investment, the earlier you do it, the better because the earnings you get get reinvested. So, exactly. on the term, compound, it's compound effect, which is a very used term, cliche term, but it's just so powerful Oof, that it's, it's, it's very important to, to remark. That's true. Compound effect is, as you stated, you do small things and eventually they add up into a very great epic stuff. Yeah. Okay, okay. Daniel, well, Uh, thank you for being here. It's been more than two hours, so I, I really appreciate your time. I know that yeah. you're currently on vacations, so thank you for... down. <laughs> but I, I, I really enjoy it, and I'm pretty sure that all our friends out there will enjoy it as well. So, guys, take care. See you in the following episodes. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And before you go, I will really appreciate it if you take the time to share this podcast with your fellow colleagues, classmates, friends, or really anyone that might be interested on the topic of chemical engineering and its related fields. If you found this content helpful and valuable, please consider subscribing, writing, and leaving a review. Thank you so much for your support. It really means a lot.